Okay. Um, the introduction is always the hardest part. <laughs> it's always like weird being like, hello, everyone. Yeah. Who's not here right now, yeah. but you will be. <laughs> Um, Just close your eyes and envision all your listeners while they're like cooking some delicious vegetables and they're ooh. like listening to us. Oh, that's a nice thought, man. <laughs> I hope that happens. Yeah. I hope one of you is cooking right now. That will happen. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Mosey Truitt. And welcome to the podcast where we explore the amazing and vast wisdom of horses, as well as the incredible and magical connection they share with their human companions. Welcome to In the Spirit of Horse. I'm here today with Nina Polo. She is amazing, I'm just going to say. She is a a synchronicity hunter. I'm really happy I got that word right. I (laughs) wanted to say it, and I was afraid I was going to flub it up. Uh, She's a friend to human and non-human animals, practitioner, teacher, and forever student of yoga, meditation, and mindfulness. She's the founder of Animal Alchemy. Animal Alchemy provides um, equine-assisted mindfulness to groups and individuals. I'm having a bit of a hard time talking today. (laughs) (laughs) If you're doing it in an accent, will that help? (laughs) Maybe. Very likely could. Uh, Nina specializes in personalized coaching and relapse prevention for people in recovery from addiction. And I just want to say she is an incredible person that I met this year and have just been so excited to work with and so excited to have on the show. So thank you, Nina, for being here. (laughs) I'm so happy to be here. Today, we are, um, our basic topic is basically the pressures of traditional equestrianism on horses, but also on humans. Um, We talk a lot hear about the pressures on horses and it's a really important conversation to have but I'd like to also acknowledge the pressures put on traditional riders and equestrians and just what that experience is like because I've gone through the equestrian you know that kind of mindset world and I know Nina has too and I yeah I just think it it would be I'm interested in exploring you know how how it affects us and um yeah just kind of diving into the topic i yeah i think you know one when you when you mentioned that topic to me one of the things that i really loved about it is that um you know us being vegans and you know maybe coming a little bit more from the you know animal advocacy world a lot of times i've had people make the assumption that you know because I speak out for animals a lot that that somehow does not include non, you know, that it doesn't include human animals. And um, my experience, however, is that actually most, you know, people that I know who are very, um, who feel very strongly about animal rights also feel very strongly about, you know, human rights and um, really want to speak out for any underdog. Um, So... I really love that, you know, you're not only talking about, you know, what is this world like for horses, but also, you know, we can't really 
view the world for horses and want to make it better without including humans because we are their, you know, in the best case, caretakers mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, in the worst case, you know, predators. Um, so I really appreciate that, you know, you wanted to do a podcast on also like what the pressure is on humans because I really believe that if we can kind of look into that and see what's at the core you know, we can really start to view the humans with as much compassion as we do um, view our horses or other animals. Yes, I completely agree. Sometimes I think people feel that if you are advocating for animals, you don't have compassion for people. And I just want to make sure that here that is not the case. I personally feel so much compassion for people and equestrians and Um, anyone in the horse world. And I think that people are just as deserving of our kindness and understanding as uh, the animals. I think in the horse world, humans feel an insane amount of pressure as well, just as the horses do. And to turn a blind eye to that or to disregard that, I don't think really helps anyone. I don't think it helps the horses, and it certainly doesn't help the people. And if we're feeling bad about ourselves or um, shamed in any way, it's hard to make positive change. And it's hard to be kinder and more open-minded for the horses in our lives. Thus, when I see people doing something with horses that I don't necessarily agree with, I still don't feel that rushing up to them and calling them out is always the way to go. We already all feel so shamed and judged And shaming really isn't the way to change, in my opinion. If we want to promote love and understanding for horses, I think we have to extend that offering to people as well and not rush in um, self-righteously, you know? Even if we don't agree what they're doing and we would like to change what they're doing, um, I don't think shaming and judging is the way to make that change. And I don't think it helps people to feel worse about themselves if you want them to have an open mind and um, and just be open to what you have to say. Yeah, I think we've probably all experienced in some form or another, you know, somebody coming up to us and saying like, hey, you're doing this wrong. Yeah. And whenever there's, you know, a finger pointed at me, my experience is that immediately that inner rebel that I have is like, you know, oh, no, thank you. I don't want anything to do with that. So I think whatever our approach is, you know, like, it's really awesome to have a genuine sense of compassion for anybody that's, you know, willing to even hear us and um, possibly, you know, take into consideration what it is that we have to say so that there's like a a mutual, a mutually beneficial, um, you know, situation rather than, me telling somebody that they're doing something wrong. I started out with very traditional equestrianism and it was never a case of not loving my horse. You know, I had Annie when I was 12 and um, if someone had come up to me and and told me everything I was doing was wrong and that I didn't love my horse and that I was um, hurting her, you know, it would have really cut me and hurt me deeply because that really wasn't my experience. I was doing things that I now wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, maybe not treating her in the way that now I would 
uh, like to see her treated. But it was never a case of not loving her or not wanting to do the best for her. Yeah. And I think that's where it can um, – where we can kind of get lost in um, blaming. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really um, – you know, I've, I've gotten the sense from you that um, when you work with people – there's always um, almost like the benefit of the doubt, you know, like we always just assume like everybody's doing their best. Um, you know, I like to look at it with um, when I see, you know, people parenting, uh, which is something that I can only imagine being, you know, the greatest challenge in life is, uh, you know, caring for another human being that you made yeah. <laughs> in some <laughs> cases um, and and how it's very easy for us to become judgmental about how we see people, you know, doing something that maybe we think we would do differently. Um, and so coming from an approach of just assuming that everybody's doing the best that they can with the tools that they have, um, I think is a really beautiful and inviting way for people to learn because, you know, I had a very, um, loving upbringing and I'm aware that not everybody had that same experience and so even when I was a kid you know I I grew up in Germany and so um you know the second world war was basically a theme throughout um every history lesson ever taught in my school um and so I really started thinking about this topic from a very early age on that um, we don't really know how we would act in circumstances that we have never been in. So me, you know, coming from a very loving home, it's very easy for me to be loving towards other people because that's how I experienced the world as a child. Um, And it kind of set the stage for me being trusting of other humans and you know, just assuming the best. Um, However, if I didn't have that experience, you know, of course we would all love to think that we would be equally loving and uh, equally kind, but we truly don't know if that is the case. So whatever the tools are that we have, and and by tools I mean also, you know, belief systems that were um, really seated in us when we were you know, tiny little babies, sometimes before the womb, you know, or in the womb. Um, all, all of those things uh, come together, and then I think we do our best. And sometimes our best is, you know, doesn't come out as like the kindest thing maybe for the other, but that doesn't mean that it's our fault necessarily. Yeah. It just means that, you know, maybe... There is room for us to learn different tools that will allow us to just live and generally in, in, a, in a world that feels a little bit more um, like communion rather than yeah. a fight or domination um, or inequality. Yeah. I feel like it comes down to also a lot of judgment and judgment we have for ourselves being the first culprit. Um, yes. And that no one's really free of that because if anyone's – we all judge and we all um, have our opinions about others, but it ultimately reflects on how we're feeling within ourselves and where we might be feeling a lack or a, a loss of love. 
or separation from love. Yeah. Which is why I think it's really important to um, to extend that love and that um, understanding to um, other equestrians and ourselves as equestrians, as people, really, but, uh, you know, focusing on yeah. horses, on what the upbringing in a... Um, in the horse world feels like because it shapes you and horses shape you so much anyway and then I think our early experiences you know when you first fall in love with horses to then the lessons um, that come along with kind of horse culture Mm -hmm. uh, it shapes us and I find it really interesting that so much of the horse world is um, kind of centered around fear and it's we know that with horse training, you know, a lot of um, training spurs out of fear of the horse, you know, sort of dominate the horse before the horse can dominate you. They're big animals, they're, they can be dangerous. Um, And then training the horse, you know, uses a lot of fear, Um, run the horse around in a circle. Um, They start to fear the, you know, the pressure we put on them. Sometimes we don't think of it as fear, but it's all very um, fear and pressure based. And then also the fear that comes in training a rider. And again, like, you know, the fear of the horse that's put on you, like um, just even being told that horses are big animals and that you need to uh, dominate them first. There's a truth that we all need to be cautious and aware that horses are, you know, they're very powerful. And honestly, it's amazing and insane that they, that these incredible huge animals let us uh, just be with them. Yeah, it's quite the honor. It is quite the honor. But I, so there's a certain level of being aware and um, and being mindful around them. But also there's a lot of fear put on equestrians. And I think it comes through the training and I think it comes through um, attitudes that are start to start to be built in you. And I know for me, a lot of that um, I had to untangle it for myself when I was, I like to call it like unbreaking Annie and kind mm-hmm. of trying to re-empower her. The process, it, it was really a reflection on me as well. I needed to kind of be unbroken from that and I needed to um, heal and re-empower from my equestrian experience. Mm-hmm. And that's where horses, I think, are fantastic teachers and the lessons they have to teach us are invaluable um so that's what i'd really like to talk about because i know you when you were young you also uh you grew up with horses right or in equestrian well i grew up so my my first experience with horses was um i grew up mostly in costa rica when i was a little kid so i was i was born in nicaragua and then we moved to costa rica when i was three years old um and then my dad is from panama and his whole family runs a dairy ranch and so they had you know quote-unquote uh work horses yeah and since I was before I could even walk I would always just whenever there was like somebody with a horse you know and you see this a lot in little kids it's like we point and we're like put me out there put me out there you know before we can even walk and that's how I was as a little kid and so my parents thankfully listened Um, so whenever we would go, you know, visit my family in Panama, I would be taken by my cousins or my uncles and they would, you know, we would like 
go and just ride into the forest and just, you know, be gone for hours. And it was like my happiest moments. Yeah. I, I think, you know, anybody who's who's ever experienced that is, I feel like, knows a, a sense of true freedom that is very hard to recreate in yeah. another way. <laughs> um, and so I was just in love. I was in love immediately. So I started taking lessons when I was really young because, you know, that's kind of what you did, I guess. Yeah. It's uh, you go and you, you take lessons. So I went to this, uh, the first stable that I ever had lessons at. Um, it was this Cuban guy who was, you know, um, kind of like a, a, you know, very uh, kind of like macho, you know, guy and... Um, and that's the way that he taught lessons. And um, he would be on his horse, you know, and we would be riding around in the arena and he would yell commands at us. And um, I remember really just loving being there and um, having kind of like a, I guess, quote unquote, you know, talent that people saw in me. So they would, you know, put me on like the horses that were, you know, like they're, you know, good horses. <laughs> and, um, and they um, started me on uh, jumping when I was really young, which is what I loved. And um, it kind of ended with me uh, being on a horse and this horse was kind of known for uh, kicking out if another horse came close to their uh, back end. And so the teacher was riding behind me and my horse kind of stopped because I think, you know, she probably felt him being close. So she stopped. Yeah. And uh, and he started yelling at me to, like, get the horse to go. Um, and I didn't really know what to do. And I was just kind of panicked because I was, you know, five years old. <laughs> and yeah. so... Um, my horse kicked out and actually kicked his shin and he yelled at me to the point of me just uh crying and leaving and my mom picked me up and she was like what happened and mm. I was crying and then she went up you know my mom never took any crap from other people <laughs> um and especially when it came to her came came to her kids uh strong, so like, mama bear. yes absolutely <laughs> she's definitely you know she's got that lioness in her so love it yeah she <laughs> went up to him and she was like what did you do to my child <laughs> and to him it wasn't it wasn't even the situation he had just acted a completely normal way to him he you know was unaware that it could have even hurt my feelings and I think he was quite from what I remember my mom saying he was quite um touched by the fact that this has affected me so much um and he kind of you know in the way that he could apologized um however I was so traumatized that I didn't want to go back so yeah. we found another place and this other place you know um my trainer was a, a little bit um softer I would say um and it was a place that mostly had people competing so I started competing with this little pony that I loved so much. Um, his name was Pavito, which means Ooh. little turkey, which I think is the oh. cutest name. <laughs> oh, gosh, that is. 
Was he? Oh, <laughs> I know. And he was just the sweetest little pony with、uh, a ton of energy who loved to jump. So we mostly jumped, and we would jump these insanely high jumps. That you know, now I look back and I'm like, man, I was fearless as a child. <laughs>、um, and it, you know, it, it was. I had so much fun. I had so much fun, and I really loved it. And then I started competing. And every time there was a competition, I would have anxiety for like a week before, and I would be so anxious at the time of the competition that I would, you know, quote unquote, mess up like the simplest things. So most of the time, either you know, Pavito wouldn't jump because he felt my anxiety, and I was probably、right. just holding on to him, and he didn't know what to do. Um, or I would, you know,、um, mess up the course and go for the wrong jump first. Something like that would always、yeah. happen.、Um, and I, I kept, you know, trying, but I really、um, sensed that something was wrong. And so, because my anxiety would mostly show up in competition, I、um, decided not to compete anymore. Around that time, we moved to Germany. This is when I was ten.、Mm-hmm. Um, my mom is from Germany, so we、um, moved there. And I right away, you know, in school, the first thing I did when I, you know, met my classmates was ask around if anybody was a writer. And I found two girls, and they、uh, took me to the place where they were taking lessons, and so I started taking lessons there. And it's really interesting because my mom, you know, at this point was just wondering how my love for horses、um, was so big because. Every place that I ever took lessons, people, the teachers would just yell at us kids. If you fell off the horse, you、um, got basically shamed,、yeah. yelled at. You know, it was you did something wrong.、Um, don't be such a you know. Like sissy for you know、yeah. not wanting to get on. It was, it was a way of、um, treating us kids that really didn't acknowledge that、um, fear was a valid emotion. Yeah, and and I think that what that does is, is、um, it breeds more fear. Yeah. However, that fear gets really pushed down. And so it can come out in many different ways, right? It can come out in acting out by, you know,、uh, cruelty. It、yeah. can come out um, by, um, you know, moving away from wanting to even be around horses. It can come out、um, by becoming like really、um, just. Kind of、um, sarcastic around around the whole you know topic.、Defensive、yes. And, yeah.、Um, so th- that was my experience, and、um, it was it was my experience until I was about sixteen years old. So I kept I kept doing it. You know, I kept、um, seeing a lot of kids really being quite cruel to their horses,、um, especially. The kids that were under a lot of pressure. So we had this family.、Um, they were a big contributor to、um, the ranch financially,、mm-hmm. and they had three daughters.、Uh, all three of them competed. The youngest one 
wasn't as, you know, in quotes, talented. Mm -hmm. And she was the one who would beat her horses um, in... She would she would literally have tamper tantrums on her horse, yeah, um, which was horrifying to me to see, and at the same time I didn't really know that there was um, a way that I could speak up um, without being, you know, excluded from being around horses, which right. was all I wanted to do. I think so many people feel that way. Actually. I think so, too. I think a lot of us um, in general, you know, we don't say something because we're afraid that the consequences might be unbearable to us. Yeah. And if you love horses, it's a pretty unbearable consequence to think about not being with them. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. I was thinking when you said um, uh, like not having room for fear. Mm hmm. And that it made, like, it can get pushed down even farther. I think that is so interesting because thinking about it, the horse world is so based around fear. Like, a lot of the techniques are really, um, like I said, like, kind of um, beat the beast yes. before the beast can beat you. Or, um, you know, like, a horse starts to act out and obviously you see a fear-based response is to start trying to control them as harsh as you can or, you know, to kind of lash out in a cruel way. And I think it's really interesting that the initial fear, like the fear of horses and possibly of being hurt by horses is kind of pushed down and it becomes layers and layers upon fear because to be afraid of a horse is seen as weakness. And thinking about my experience with, um, you know, growing up with lessons, different things like that. Um, yeah, there wasn't that much room for the base fear of, um, could I get hurt? Mm -hmm. You know, that thought people didn't really want to talk about it. I, I guess they would, but not in a, um, a very nurturing way, Yes. you know? And so it, you have to pile on top of it almost not to face the core fear. Yeah, absolutely. I think I that uh, really rings true to me. I think, um, you know, whenever we don't acknowledge uh, something as core as fear, yeah. um, which, you know, many people say there's only two emotions. It's like fear and love, love right? Mm -hmm. So in a way, it could be like one of the two. Mm -hmm. and And it is, I think it is a natural... Um, state to have a bit of fear. I mean, we all know fear actually, you know, prevents us from dying. It's communication. <laughs> exactly. It can be used as the same way pain is communication. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, so fear is quite valuable. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of times, unfortunately, in our society, fear is seen is seen as something negative. Mm -hmm. um, instead of us, you know, acknowledging it with um, kids and letting them be afraid, and then showing them, you know, maybe really playful ways of like playful, yes, yes, how we can, you know, move through that fear and and truly by connecting, right, is what what would probably move us out of that fear and move us into trust instead of doing that we 
are kind of told don't we're told be afraid but don't show it yeah it's a denial too yes a denial of the yeah that sorry it's it's so interesting because you can just see it layer and layered upon that instead of being um fear being an emotion that communicates with us and helps us to um grow and expand um it just becomes weighed down and kind of blocks out room for anything else yeah it's like by ignoring the fear and always having to feel on top and in control we end up lashing out in defense and then it's like we're in a state of constant defense from the horse we end up lashing out in anger and embarrassment and we lash out in cruelty and harsh punishment towards the horse because we can't even acknowledge the base, which is we are afraid. Instead, the fear gets to take us over unconsciously and run the show unexamined. And this is how it shows up in our horsemanship and our treatment of the horse. It ends up actually controlling our actions through runoff emotions like anger and guilt, causing us to behave in ways we might not otherwise agree with. We are expected to be tough all the time in the horse world. I really felt that, you know, with no room for fear, you have to constantly be um, rough and tough and, um, and tough in the face of situations that actually really challenge you or really scare you. And thus, you end up lashing out in a defensive way. You end up hitting your horse. You end up um, unconsciously being cruel in a way you don't mean to be. We are expected to be tough all the time. And I think that's a huge reason equestrians experience so much pressure and anxieties. There's no room for, quote, weakness, um, which leaves no room for vulnerability. And so the fear, rather than being seen and understood and worked through is instead projected forward onto the horse and we start unconsciously uh, reacting out of fear towards the horse and horses get hit and tantrum sorry i can't speak um but temper tantrums start happening on the horse um for kids and adults and it's understandable because the fear is real but it's just not actually being seen or acknowledged or dealt with in a healthy way and in a way that allows you to act out of love and choose love because if the fear isn't seen it's no longer a choice how to act is no longer a choice it's happening unconsciously without real say from us and from uh how we want to be i mean my personal example of that was you know, when I was when I was 16, I kind of decided, okay, um, it was either being with horses in this way or not being with horses. And I decided not to be with horses, which to this day breaks my heart. You yeah. know, like I get emotional about thinking about 16-year-old me, you know, mm-hmm. not having that connection because it was too painful to be there. And so I got out of it and I stayed out of it for... Quite a few years um, until I was um, 
back living in Costa Rica with, uh, my parents were actually living in Costa Rica as well at the time. And my mom found this article in the newspaper and she said, look at this. This woman is doing something called natural horsemanship. Um, read a little bit about it. I think it sounds interesting. And I read about it and it was, you know, my mind was blown. Yeah. I was, I had no clue that people were out there at least trying to communicate with horses in a way that, you know, wasn't just being like, here's my human communication and I'm going to put this on you yeah. and you better do it that way, um, which is what it felt like to me um, prior. And so I met with this woman and um, she was really uh, lovely and a wonderful teacher and had so much compassion for me. And I really, really appreciated that. And I first said to her, you know, she um, she actually had, she was a, a dressage. Mm -hmm. um, she competed in dressage. And so she had actually a German horse that she had brought from Germany um, to, Costa to Costa Rica. Yeah. So he was, he was big, you know, he was a big dressage horse. And the first thing I said was, wow, I didn't remember them being this big. And I'm kind of scared. And... Just putting it out there. Just putting like, it out so there. It lifted honest. so much of the pressure that I had built up around yeah. horses. Um, and it truly, you know, and then her being able to hold space for that and not, you know, denying my fear, but yeah. actually saying, yes, you're right. They're quite big. And um, it does require us to be really aware of ourselves and be aware of the horse's space and our space and how we interact with each other um, so that we don't get hurt, so that yeah. we feel a sense of safety. And whatever it is that you need to do to first establish that sense of safety is okay. If you don't even yeah. go near the horse today, that's okay. And it was beautiful, you know. By the end of the day, I was, I was very much back in my kind of comfort zone with mm -hmm. being around horses and it was lovely and it also um really taught me that it's okay to you know say when we're afraid and yeah. to ask for help when we're not quite sure um how to act because that was another thing that as a kid you know I I I learned this belief that if you asked for help, it meant that you had no clue what you were doing. Right. So yeah. if I asked, basically all that I learned, I learned by observing other people and then doing it the same way because yeah. I never really asked people if they could teach me how to groom a horse, put on a saddle, nothing like that. It was basically yeah. I would have to observe and then copy. And as I copied it, pretend that I already knew what I was doing. It's such an interesting pressure. Yes. So. Yeah, I just I relate so much also to um, as a student and also now as a teacher of needing or knowing the importance of of making that space or creating that space for people who come in with horses because I meet a lot of people that have uh, residual uh, not it's not just fear but it's a uh, an anxiety around me maybe mm -hmm. as a um, as someone who's there to help them that they should already know what they're doing I, I sense that I you know um, 
I can tell you, like, before I, um, when I first met you, you know, and I was thinking about, because my mind really loves to fantasize about fun <laughs> things, and so I was thinking about, like, working with you and learning from you, and I definitely had those thoughts, and thankfully, you know, I have a, a very strong meditation practice, and I have a yoga practice, yeah. and so I've been working with all of these things, and I am really getting to know my mind very well and, and observe it with a lot of curiosity, so... So that's really cool and it helps me. But I definitely had those moments of thinking like, you really need to let Mosey know all of your fears and all of your anxieties. Because I've always, this is what I've learned from my practice is whenever I have anxiety around something, the easiest way for me to move through that anxiety is communicate um, with whoever is you know, part of the equation. Yeah. So if I have the anxiety of like, oh yeah, I should know all these things because, you know, oh, I am a yoga teacher and I do mindfulness and I am with animals all the time. I should already know all of these things. Then why am I here? Right? Right. And I feel the same as actually as a teacher, the the pressure to need to know the, all the answers yes. and it's just that's when you get really blocked in and that's when you get really limited is if you need to feel like you know the answers to everything because if you don't then you feel like you're a failure versus yes. you're growing and it's part of the the like never-ending quest you know that is actually the fun and amazing and playful part and really the best part yeah I th- Sorry, but that was something that really, um, you know, when you said rigidity, as I was thinking about this topic, I thought, okay, so what is it? It's really, it's the pressure is that we have, you know, we're, we're told to be afraid, but we're not allowed to be afraid. Mm -hmm. And then what does that create? Well, usually it creates, you know, or at least my experience is that it created, um, on one hand, perfectionism, yeah, and on the other hand, a rigidity, and mm-hmm. those two go together so well, right? They do so, so well. <laughs> so, rigidity is a concept that I've thought about a lot because um, one of my main yoga teacher, um, he oftentimes talks a lot. He talks a lot about rigidity and flexibility, and mm-hmm. he, you know. When he teaches yoga, he asks people, would you rather have, you know, flex- flexible hamstrings or a flexible mind? And I think that's such a nice question to ask, yeah. right? Because, you know, with, with yoga, it kind of makes a lot of sense because so many people get into it because, you know, we want to have flexible bodies and strong bodies and all of these things. But really, the yoga practice was meant to give us flexible minds. And a flexible mind leads to much more happiness than flexible hamstrings. <laughs> so really allowing flexibility um, requires, though, a space where you feel safe. And that's what I never got in my, in my traditional upbringing in, you know, the equestrian world because there was only one right way of doing things. Yeah. Um, if you didn't know that right way of doing things, you were wrong. Mm-hmm. And if there is only right and wrong, that's rigid already, right? And if there's only right and wrong, 
we're going to want to be right. And then we become perfectionists. And that's a whole nother podcast I yeah. think, that we God, could do. You see that in horses so much. Uh, oh, you see the anxiety in horses, um, ones that have been like very traditionally broken uh, between the right and wrong. And when you start play and you start to bring in more options, horses that have come to rely on that so heavily for their safety, some of them can start to freak out or have yeah. a breakdown in a way just for from having more options of what there is to do. And you have to be insanely nurturing and encouraging and empowering with those horses, as with all horses. But I see that in people who come to me too, um, people who um, constantly apologize also for, you know, it's new for them. What I do is new with them. And, and you can feel the guilt and the kind of scramble to be, uh, it's not to impress me, but in some ways it is, in some ways it's to prove something to me. And I'm so, you know, not concerned at all about mm -hmm. that. And I try to make a space where, um, people can really be, uh, free and nurtured and um, have have space to be wrong. Like yeah. even the idea of, quote, wrong, because yeah. it's so important for horses to have space for that. And same with the people. And I think I really noticed that for the first time when I started teaching clinics. And some of the anxieties, you know, I was really focused on the horses. I was like trying to I was putting my energy there, how to help people unbreak them. And I was realizing that the people there needed just as much attention to feel safe in, um, in trying something new and in, and in being playful. And playful includes right, wrong. It includes like experimentation. It includes mistakes. And, and I think that had been the most freeing thing for me when I started focusing on play with horses mm -hmm. rather than um, just doing, just going into be right, do it, yes. you know, the kind of the end result. I love, know. I love that so much. I love um, so many things about that, but like that you have the, you have the love for the horses, you have the love for the humans. Um, and wanting to, you know, create a safe space for everybody, um, is a, is a really honorable, um, you know, wish to have, I think. And, you know, my, my first thought when you were mentioning that was that I have the same thing, um, you know, I've been a, a yoga teacher and meditation teacher for a while, and now that I'm working with the horses and with clients, um, you know, it, it brings a whole nother level um, of anxieties into the game. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's really beautiful to observe because when I teach as a meditation teacher, as a yoga teacher, it's very easy to focus on just the person. And, yeah. um, and it's really beautiful because we can really work with self-judgment, which you had mentioned um, earlier. I really believe that uh, meditation is one of the most powerful tools to overcome self-judgment. Um, yeah. I would say that it was, you know, the biggest game changer for me in my life. You know, I'm definitely a recovering perfectionist. I'm, uh, 
you know, somebody who as a little kid, like I would start a drawing and within like, you know, five strokes or something, if it wasn't exactly what I expected it to be, I would crunch up the paper, throw it out, start anew. And I would do that like five times and I never finished anything because I was a perfectionist. Oh, I understand that theme so well. Oh <laughs> exactly. My I'm quite sure that a lot of people resonate with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when I started meditating, my first thing was, okay, so I'm sitting here and I'm going to observe my breath, right? I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out. Am I doing this right? Okay, so what am I going to do tomorrow? Um, oh yeah, I have to like, oh, I didn't really sleep, you know, and then the mind goes and it goes and it goes. And then the first thing is just acknowledging that. So what happens for a lot of people, and this is what happened for me was, uh, I'm doing this wrong. I would get really annoyed with myself. I would get very impatient with myself. I would, you know, judge myself for not being a, you know, quote unquote, good meditator. And this is quite common, yeah. you know, it, it happens to a lot of us. And so... In all things. In all things, in all things. And I always like to think of meditation as my practice round for life because it's where I get to, you know, experience that judgment in a safe environment and maybe, okay, maybe I just see what happens if I you know, watch my mind with a little bit more curiosity than judgment. Okay, where is it going? Huh, it's interesting that it's going there. That's kind of cool. Okay, fine. Let's come back to the breath. And then, okay, it goes there. And then I like to use the symbol of like a little child, you know, Mm -hmm. because I think they're so innocent or like a puppy, you know, they're so innocent. (laughs) So I'm like, all right, treat your mind like a little child or like a puppy. Like you pick them up and you <laughs> gently bring them back. And okay, let's observe the breath again. Yeah. So that was kind of like my way of being playful with my meditation. And That's what I keep thinking. It is so playful. And I just, for me, I find play to be kind of the answer yeah. to just so much. Yeah. Just so, so much. And I, I love that the more playful we can become with ourselves, it does transform fear like once you've dealt with it and you've acknowledged it from a place of um limiting you to exciting and expanding you and play like even with animals in the um you know when they're growing up it's the way that they learn and humans too all animals um it's how you learn to do new things and it's how you learn to you you know something new comes into your environment and it can either um cause you to freeze or or run or fight um, or it can become a curiosity and then you can start into play and play allows you to like really let go of your judgments and start to grow in a fun fun way yeah I've been um, reading a little bit on um, attachment theory Mm -hmm. and it's so fascinating because basically how they would test that was by um um, having little kids from I think six to 18 months um, in a room it's called the new situation test or something like mm-hmm. that and so they would have the kids you know with um, a person that they didn't know the parent would come in or their primary caretaker would come in and um, you know there'd be toys and stuff so um, usually what happens is you know the kid starts playing and then um, the parent would leave the room 
And there's three different types of how the reaction can go. So a child that has a secure attachment style mm-hmm. would, you know, cry and kind of like, you know, be, mm, yeah, kind of like stressed when the parent left yeah. the room. As soon as the parent comes back, it would be let, you know, the parent like console them and then they would go back to being curious about their mm-hmm. environment. And then there's the anxious style, which would be really anxious when the parent leaves and then stay anxious when the parent comes back and then yeah. even be kind of mad. And then there's, and these is little kids, right? So then there's the, the uh, avoidant child in the attachment theory. And so they would, you know, the parent would leave and the child would just pretend nothing's happened. They would just kind of like continue to play, but they could see that, you know, the child was very aware. And when yeah. the parent would come back, they would ignore the parent or a caretaker. Mm-hmm. And I really um, think that so many of these things, you know, how we react, how much curiosity we have about the world, um, how, how much we nourish our curiosity has a lot to do with our upbringing. And so yeah. oftentimes, you know, and this is where compassion comes into play again, is oftentimes like these things are so deeply rooted in ourselves that there's really no need for us to judge ourselves because yeah. it's really not our fault. And I really like to tell people this that are very harsh on, on themselves because, you know, I had a great upbringing and I was still harsh on myself. So, you know, somebody who really struggled in the beginning of their life, oftentimes internally still struggles um, a lot into their adulthood. So when we start to give them space, you know, as facilitators or teachers, when we start um, giving other people as well the space to just know that whatever happens is okay. It doesn't matter, you know, there is really no true wrong. It can really heal some of those like deeply seated wounds. And I find that to me, that's when, you know, that's when like my magic happens in the world. I love that. And I I think judgment recently for me personally has been such a big theme of letting go of judgments and freeing, freeing pieces of myself up, even just to look at them and to be able to see them with compassion, you know, and see, to see ourselves with compassion without judgment, I think is one of the most healing, beautiful acts of self-love we can do. And yeah, I think that's, if I could bring something into the horse world and bring something to the people that I work with, it would be hopefully in whatever way I can to free them from whatever, whatever judgments they might have around horses. But really, you know, horses are such a good reflection of just everything else we in our lives. Yeah. And Horses really are the best, one of the best teachers for this. And that's why I really, um, I hope to focus more and more on teaching the lessons of the horse and not the lessons of, not just the lessons of Mosey, you know, like the lessons (laughs) of the horses are what really like. You're like the translator. Yeah, hopefully. (laughs) And just so that people can find it in their own and like, and play and find what works for them. Yeah. 
What I really um, love about that is I think the best teachers that I've ever had are teachers who are unafraid to be vulnerable, yeah. you know? And some of these teachers are, are, are people who I don't know. Like, I read Brene Brown yeah. religiously because, you know, vulnerabilities are kind of her thing. And I really think that the power is in that because if we as teachers present ourselves in a way that we look like we're perfect or yeah. we're like already there, you know, yeah. then we're not creating a safe space. We're not creating a safe environment for other people to be like empowered and know that we're all just on the path, right? We're all yeah. just no on the path No one knows really learning. what they're doing. <laughs> Nobody knows what they're doing. Yeah. And I, I, I really think that that's so important, you know, when sometimes people uh, see me and, you know, maybe they meet me because I was teaching a meditation class or a yoga class and they immediately have this view of me, right? And then they learn I'm a vegan. So they assume I'm a vegan because I'm like really health conscious. And then I say something like, oh yeah, when I quit smoking, like not that long ago. And they're shocked, you know, they're right. legitimately shocked. And they have a hard time understanding because my whole persona that they had just built around, you know, right. what they've seen of me um, crumbled. And I really think that, um, I love talking about those things, you know, sometimes yeah. my friends, they really try to protect me and they, maybe they don't say, you know, that I used to smoke or that I used to drink or as if that somehow makes it invalid, like exactly. what you have to teach. Yeah. Whereas to me, I feel like that's why yeah. my lessons are valid is because I've lived through a lot of all that I, everything that I teach is, um, what my own experience has taught me. Um, because otherwise I don't really feel, you know, that I, that I can speak of things if I haven't experienced them myself. Yeah. Um, and that is why, you know, not every teacher is for every person. Like I have certain experiences, you know, addiction is a, a huge part of my life. And, um, that's why I love working with people in recovery. Uh, that's why I have such a deep passion for it. And that's part of my past and yeah. my path and it's part of my present and part of my future um so I think being open about you know the parts of our lives where we have done things that don't look perfect um is one of the most beautiful things I think we can do for anybody who wants to learn from what yeah. we have to share it's so much more powerful so much more powerful. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I can't even the the amount of pressure I think that I've experienced at least to be a teacher that as though you're meant to have all the answers as well or mm -hmm. or the idea of perfection. I just I feel so deeply how it's one of the most limiting things and how it actually sets you back from doing what you want to do and being able to help people. I find especially with horses and not just especially with horses, but my experiences with horses that sometimes people expect you to have all the answers. And again, they can be kind of shocked uh, just to know that you're human or that yeah. there are things that you're still exploring or things that you're still figuring out. And the idea that that doesn't devalue what you have to share and it's not either you have it all figured out and you have something valuable to share or you are learning and you're not qualified to teach you know, those kind of two extremes. It's also like the right and wrong that it's either student or teacher when really 
oops, sorry, <laughs> really, it's so much more fluid than that. And it should be. And that's how you get out of, um, that's how you get unstuck. Yes. It's, it's how you get out. I think of that rigidity yeah. that we were talking about. And I really think that that frees up so many things in our lives when we are able to get out of being rigid. Yeah. Um, you know, I was going to say the word rigidity, but then I knew I was going to like flub it up because it's hard for me to say <laughs> but you just said rigidity. It. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, uh, unstuck. That is another <laughs> word for that. But I, yeah, I was kind of trying to pull it back because to your point originally, because I thought that was really good. Yeah, I really believe that, <laughs> you know, when we, when we can start to acknowledge that things are usually not the way that we think they are exactly Mm -hmm. you know there's always room for things to be different um and whenever we feel very stuck with a question that we have in life or you know an, an issue or something and then sometimes we have those moments where like you know it seems like a blessing from the heavens or something where you know bing yeah. this light goes off and we're like oh we don't I don't need to do it exactly that way. It could also be this way. Yeah. And whenever we open that up, you know, and I I really believe that doing this work, working with animals who are the greatest teachers in a way that, you know, they naturally are non-judgmental. And so they really teach us to be non-judgmental. And then we can start to allow ourselves to not judge ourselves so harshly then we start to not judge others so harshly. That's always how it Then goes. we start to not judge situations so harshly, mm-hmm. which then allows for... Freedom. Mind expansion. Yeah. It's so, it's, it's so cool. It's beautiful. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I think that is an amazing point to rub this up on. Yeah. And I love where this conversation has gone. It's gone to all these places that I actually wanted to dive really deeply into all these little <laughs> sections. And we will, because we're going to do many more. Yeah, I, I'll I come back. I'm love sure. hanging out with you, girl. <laughs> Same. It's great. Well, and you see, the room is like filled with like the heart emojis <laughs> right now. They're just flying everywhere. <laughs> I like the purple one. Yes. Um, <laughs> in reality, we're like in this really makeshift room, like where I've tried to hang all these blankets, blankets up on the walls. And it's fabulous. And it really also- works for me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And Nina, thank you so much. It is fantastic to be with you. It's so wonderful to be here. If you want to find Nina's work, where would be the best place for them to look you up? So the best place, uh, my personal uh, Instagram, uh, if you just want to like see what I'm up to in my daily life, is Nina Maderita. That's Nina, N-I-A. N-I-N-A, I can't spell my name, N-I-N-A, and then M-A-D-E-R-I-T-A. Awesome. Yeah, that's Spanish. And I love um, it. my website is theanimalalchemy.com. There's also a Instagram for Animal Alchemy. That's just at Animal Alchemy. Um, I don't do like Twitter or any of the other stuff. I, I, mean, I think I just kind of... Oh, you don't it's either? It's too complicated. I just assumed... 
because you're a millennial that see there you oh, go God, my assumptions no. <laughs> broken into pieces perfect <laughs> so yeah <laughs> um yeah mostly uh my website and instagram would be the way to stay in touch uh if you want to shoot me a message i love hearing from people and also mosey and i are going to be doing workshops together we so are. if I'm you're so somewhere near southern california or you want to come get some sun then come hang out with us. Yes, please do come hang out with us. Also, I want to mention that Nina has an amazing blog. Is that on your website, Animal? Yes. Awesome. Um, my my blog is actually it's called Inspiration for Sanity, <laughs> and um, it, that's uh, Inspiration for like the number for Sanity, and it will be on my website. I'm kind of still working that out because you know computers. Yeah, computer. <laughs> I feel you. That is. Awesome. It is a great, great blog. Thank I you. I love it. It's full of love. Full of self-love. There's a lot too. of love in it. It's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Nina. And thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hi, everyone. Thank you all so much for listening to the podcast. I am so excited to have launched it this week. If you are liking the show, it would really mean so much to me if you could comment and subscribe and maybe even share it with your friends. This first week um, for a podcast is actually really, really crucial in getting the word out. So if you like it and you feel like sharing and commenting, it would be so appreciated. I hope to make many, many more episodes that are interesting and fun and in-depth and just go deeper into the horse topics I like and that hopefully you like. Thank you all, and I will see you next week. Bye.